Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I done well to survive anyway. Madame Delhi will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, but not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say so what? Police in riot gear with Trump. I am ashamed to call myself a European. The recognition of Guaido is an absolute embarrassment. Now, you did use the word gobshite, and, so uh, I would re- reprimand you over them. Yeah, so hello, 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 and welcome back to I Foresee Trouble with Daly and Wallace. Um... What else to talk about besides vaccines at the moment is dominating everything in the European Parliament. There's a, a huge amount of questions. Um, you heard us probably in our last podcast, if you haven't heard it, we we're talking about the APAS, the Advanced Purchase Agreement contracts that became available with um, CureVax, one of the, the companies supplying these vaccines. Uh, we've then heard about Pfizer-BioNTech um, contract becoming available. We don't know when that is. Um, there's loads of questions, loads of things happening. Uh, what's your take on what's been happening during the week? Well, I mean, we did say last week that it looked like the situation was maybe beginning to unravel a bit for the EU in relation to... It's obviously me he's that allergic cough, to. I when I speak, he's obviously he allergic cough, to that. except when he's on I the podcast. Know, it's still, anyway, look at... Um, maybe it's vaccines, actually, that, yeah. that's sort of getting them all agitated. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too close to Jamie. You're not, maybe too, that's you're not close enough maybe to the microphone. It, maybe that's it. But um, <laughs> no, look, at, we did warn last week that the, it looked like the situation was beginning to unravel a bit for the EU and sadly that has proven to be the case because it's just got from one disastrous announcement to another and I'm sure people sitting at home who are desperate for an end to this situation who'd really love to hear that the vaccine programme is on target and that life is going to go back to normal but sadly the reality is shaping up to be very different than that although I think we have to have a bit of a warning that you know some of this is the fact that we're talking about the production of a vaccine on a mass scale like you know in private companies that hasn't been seen in a long long time so there's a gigantic demand and the supply is going to inevitably have a little bit of a catch up but we are paying the price for being at the mercy of of big pharma in relation to this and each different vaccine is nearly coming up with its own problem now from the, the contracts with AstraZeneca saying, no, we're only going to give the EU 25% of what uh, the EU said we were getting. Um, the EU say they're lying, they say, no, we're lying. And unless no the transparency <laughs> issue is dealt with, yeah. we don't even know as MEPs. So that's the first thing we need to address that. Then there's problems with, is there six doses or five doses in the, in the Pfizer one? And then they're given a reduced number based on the fact that, no, you should be getting six out of the out of the file but you can only get six out if you have a special needle and there's a a run on those special syringes internationally as well so some of it is the scale of responding but some of it does seem to be well somebody's lying and we don't know who and for people sitting at home it's really worrying there was an interview given by pascal uh soriot he's the chief executive of astrazeneca um the other day and that really threw the cat among the pigeons uh, it was he was fairly straight talking, right? The big obstacle and the big challenge for the EU now uh, and its member states is that there seems to be a delay in the rollout of the vaccine, and it appears. And in fairness 
to the Director General of Health in the Commission, uh, when I, uh, Galina, when I challenged her two weeks ago, she did say that we are not going to see a serious rollout in the first quarter, but after that, we will. Is what she said, mm. right? So, but now, right, we've had AstraZeneca saying they're only going to deliver 25 or 30 percent of what uh, it seemed they were going to deliver first. And uh, the chief executive said, Oh, we never gave a commitment that we would deliver X, Y, or Z. We just said we'd do our best. Now, that seems pretty mad, mm. right? So that's problematic. And this afternoon, the Germans have come out and said that they're not going to give AstraZeneca to people over 65. We have a European Union of 27 member states, and we have different health bodies. Uh, We have a a Commissioner for Health. We have the Director General for Health. We have the EMA. And they're supposed to be singing off the same hymn sheet, right? But already, two weeks ago, we highlighted that the Germans had gone off and ordered millions of extra doses, uh, breaking the EU rules in the process. It broke EU, EU procurement arrangements. Mm. And now they're, they're, they're saying, uh, they're picking a vaccine that the EU have ordered and they're saying, yeah, but we're not giving that to over 65s. Now, I mean, it's a bit problematic. Now, the reason, okay, so why are the pharmaceutical companies say, uh, slow now with the rollout? Well, it appears to me, right, first of all, we had Pfizer, Zeneca, uh, Pfizer-BioNTech say that, oh, sorry, a little delay now on the rollout because we have to upgrade our plants. Now, just think about it, right? They're upgrading their plants for a vaccine that we're talking about for 12 months mm. and now they want to upgrade the plants. I'll tell you what they're doing. What it appears to me, and, and, and as AstraZeneca let the cat out of the bag because what AstraZeneca admitted was, well, we make stuff in our own plants in the UK but we have some plants in Europe that make stuff too. But they're not our own. They're subcontracting out, mm. right? They're sub- so there's, there's companies now getting a gig to manufacture a vaccine. Now, I'm not saying they're going to do it wrong. But clearly, in some cases, they're actually not ready for it. And so now, I mean, uh, Pfizer-BioNTech said that they have to um, upgrade some plants. But they're not their, their, you'll find that their own plants are fine and upgraded for what they're supposed to do. But they're obviously, in order to make more, they're actually subcontracting it out. And AstraZeneca have admitted that they're going to other uh, facilities and getting them to make some vaccine for them. So this is all a little bit scary. But, I mean, as Claire said, right, the really mad part about all this is, and we've been saying it for years, health is so important to the people of Europe and every country in it. And the idea that we would leave ourselves vulnerable and at the mercy of big pharma who really only care about making money is a problem. Well, I like to, yeah, I mean, and that lesson is going to be learned by people. I mean, you're totally right. Like, of the... And the morality of this issue now is coming to the head. Like, of the vaccines that have been produced or are committed to be produced, we know that 82% of the Pfizer vaccine has been ring-fenced for Europe and America and the, the sort of global north, as it were. 78% of it, uh, of the Moderna one, has been 
Moderna one has been similarly acquired by mm. the wealthy nations. And now we have, because of production problems, not enough for the wealthy nations quick enough. So you have nearly trade wars developing. You had the Belgian government today going into um, examine factories, AstraZeneca factories, to see did any of the production there end up going to the UK. And then you have the UK saying that we're not sending, and the uh, EU saying stuff produced in the UK has to come to Europe. And they're saying, no, no, we're keeping it for our own first. I mean, this is trade war madness mm. stuff. Like, it's absolutely appalling. And, you know, it does bring in the whole area of the global south and that as well. And the points we were making last week that we'll never get rid of this virus until everybody has access. I yeah. mean, in that sense, the we'll European Union. Well, yeah. they're a deliberate blocking of the efforts yeah. of, of South Africa and India to lift the patent uh, barriers on this uh, vac- these vaccines to allow it to be generically produced across so that everybody can get access to it cheaply is is quite disgusting mm. like that they would block that you know this, yeah. this, this morning uh, uh, a group of countries uh, in the global south uh, mostly Africa and South America they've done some research on their rollout and they hoped to vaccinate up to 60% of their people in the next two years. Two years? We, have, we had a debate uh, with uh, Imer Cook, the, the head of the medical agency, on, on Tuesday. And uh, one guy made a very good point. He says, look what he said. I know it's not your, it's not your fault about the rollout. Your, your responsibilities are different, and, and that's true. But he said, this delay, he says, is serious. He says, there's a half million people after dying in Europe of COVID Mm. and he said if we're looking at a delay of three months now for the rollout in general across Europe we're looking at losing at least an extra 100,000 people he said he was saying 50,000 a month Scary, um, and yeah. so we're talking about months of delay, we, as if they're. Yeah, just he, he says, days, and he said between one hundred and one hundred and fifty thousand. Mm. He said, right? Uh, I mean, which and you is, you were speaking as well with uh, Emer Cook. Um, you had a few questions, and she gave you some answers. What were they? Uh, there were a variety of questions, right? Um, and uh, okay, but for example, the first one I asked her was, "Does the EMA's conditional marketing authorization require higher safety and efficiency standards than the UK's regulatory's approval process, regulators' approval process?" Now, the way she answered that, though, she's clever enough, right? And she doesn't give the right answer. She's a bit of a politician, <laughs> even though I'm not criticising. I mean, I think she has a very difficult job, and I think she, from what I can see, I think she's doing okay. Right? I wouldn't be throwing stones at her, right? I also asked her about the fact that when it approved the, the Pfizer vaccine in December, uh, the UK regulator at the same time approved a gap of 84 days between the doses, right? Because you know that uh, most of the vaccines are saying there's going to be two doses required, right? The EMA's approval is based on a 21-day gap and I asked her if that might change with them. Is there such a big difference between the European regulator, uh, the EMA, and the UK regulator. And she actually said there's very little difference between herself and the UK regulator and that she talks to him nearly every day. Right, so what's the difference then? Well, in actual fact, the difference is political, right? It's not that the UK regulator says, oh, here, go ahead, start making it a scan. And that the Europeans are slower, right? The UK regulator is working within a political framework that's different to the one that... Emer Cook and the EMA are working on that, right? So there's a real strong political dimension to the fact that the EU or the the UK regulator 
is able to get it out faster because of a direct a political directive that he's working under. And I mean, that sounds a bit confusing. She didn't actually uh, admit that completely in her questions, but if you if you look read between the lines, mm. that's what yeah. she is saying. You know. Now I also I also asked about the fact that the AstraZeneca vaccine was approved by the UK regulator on December thirtieth. Yet AstraZeneca only applied for approval to the EMA on January 12th. And there's no clear cut answer, right? And she she talked about, uh, about I mean, I asked her, was, I, mean, can you, I said, does the EMA demand more complete or higher quality data than the UK regulator? Mm. And she kind of said, yeah, but I'll tell you what I think is at the root of this is that AstraZeneca... They can only produce so much so quick. And they were limited. If you're going to say, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you that, well, you've got to be able to supply. Mm. And I'd say they didn't see much rationale in going to the European EMA much earlier because they knew that, you know what now, by the time we get all our ducks in a row and by the time we get this out onto the market in England, uh, we'll have plenty of time to get the approval from the EMA by the t- before we're able to make it for them. Mm. I mean, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, on the one hand, I suppose it's an indication of money talks as well, because actually the US and the UK pumped in a lot more money than the EU did to a lot of these private companies as well. We have the obscenity of Israel paying paying three times the amount that the EU paid for vaccines. Uh, Mind you, they're pocketing that for for, uh, their their non-Palestinian citizens as well. But it just shows you, if you want to pay over the odds, you can buy anything in this world. But that's kind of capitalism and that's at at the root of of this uh, big problem. (coughs) We also see in terms of the narrative of people, what it kind of shows to people looking on is, and this is a huge political problem for the EU, is, well, it kind of seems to vindicate what Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson were saying, that the EU is pretty bureaucratic and unnecessarily so, and delays progress, and that they were able to move quicker and and without jeopardising safety, because I don't think anybody is saying that, you know, the UK has gone to Mm. being some sort of a mad thing where they're just approving anything. Like, I mean, they were at the centre of the EMA. They haven't lost that knowledge. So um, that they've done it quicker. And it's I've got emails from people this week saying, I'm a committed European. I love the European Union, but I have to say my patience has been severely tested on this one. So I think it's really interesting. What I also thought was interesting, it's it's a slightly off subject, but it's very related because it's about how the information is getting home. And it just struck me when Mick was at the at the Envy Committee with Emer Cook last week because Mick is probably the most active member of Envy from Ireland, if you like. And twice now, the meetings of that committee have been RTE headline news. And not once did he get mentioned at at either. Now, the first one we thought was gas because Mm. he actually asked the same question as somebody from the far right in Italy. And it was the one from the far right in Italy. It was actually her question that was pulled out and they didn't mention Mick at all. At last week's meeting, at this week's meeting, Mick was sitting at the meeting, intervened, asked the direct questions to her and RTE quoted... Barry Andrews and Billy Kelleher. Now, you might think we're saying, are we getting a bit delusional? And then we we joined the dots. And this morning, Claire Byrne asked me on, and I couldn't go on. I had commitments that I absolutely couldn't get out of. But I said, listen, you know, contact Mick on this. He's, um, you know, really clued Mm. in envy. No phone call, no nothing. Billy Kelleher was on it again. And in fairness to Billy, he didn't sound like he knew a whole lot about it. But... (laughs) 
This ties in with the fact that uh, another issue that we made last week about the tax havens where we had kind of mentioned it, where we, we, we were putting down an amendment uh, in a motion going before the plenary last week about how the EU deals with tax havens and they had the cheek to not mention any EU countries and an amendment mm-hmm. we put down from the um, uh, an international index listed the top 11 countries of which Ireland was one and the Irish MEPs, uh, surprise, surprise, yeah. didn't vote for that motion, which was a bit sickening. So a lot of the Irish so, papers did a big article and they didn't mention us at all and it was our <laughs> amendment. So and this, it passed. Not- so the thing about that is it passed. This amendment passed. Your own amendment passed. Two votes. Two votes in the parliament of over 700 people. It's a very significant vote that a whole resolution has been turned upside down. It was not mentioning Ireland at all. Now it specifically mentions Ireland as a tax haven, along with loads of other jurisdictions in the European Union and uh, island um, areas of, of the UK. Um, so passes. It's covered in The Guardian. It's covered in, in loads of British uh, media. Not, well, there's maybe a few articles in Ireland or whatever it doesn't mention either of you who are the only two names on the feckin' amendment. Yeah. <laughs> you actually well, can't make it up. Well, so. they even do the whole number of articles like Barry Andrews explains that he voted for a motion as a mistake and then the article goes into and it quotes him and it quotes um, Chris McManus from Sinn Féin who changed <laughs> his vote and, it's a, and then it's a, a few independents voted for it. They didn't say anything that it was our amendment. They didn't even mention us and they were naming the others. So I don't know what's going on. I, I clearly think now Tony Connolly doesn't like Mick now, clearly. We kind of understand how RTE works for a long time, right? It was laughable uh, this week when we had very good questions for Emer Cook. In fact, they were so good that Tony Connolly focused on her responses to my questions, mm. right? I asked four questions mm. and he actually, and Emer Cook was excellent in her Responses. She gave it a good bit of time, yeah. and Tony Connolly focused on her responses to me, but of course didn't mention the fact that I asked them. I mean, you would have to wonder: uh, Is RTE joined at the hip with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael? Mm. People give out about state media in different countries. I mean, <laughs> China and Russia and whatever, right? Oh, and uh, but in actual fact. There's a bit of it going on in most countries. So it's not just Ireland, right? But I mean, in Ireland, sadly, RTE uh, defends the status quo uh, on a regular basis. Mm. And it's what it does or for also a living. It pits them together and makes it look like that's a real opposition as well. Do you know, like that's that's as broad a spectrum of debate as you get often as between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Well, the irony is now they're the actually Greens. also including the Greens in this. Yeah. They're actually supporting the government, which is their paymaster. And when you look at the... Um, list of salaries of RTE yet again, which was revealed over the last couple of weeks. It's yeah. easy to see why, like these big names, and it's not the people doing the makeup or the people on the front desk or the people on the ground, like you know, but they're big hitters and they're high profile people. And the people over here that RTE have somebody over here full time and didn't, you know, even cover that. Like they, Tony Connolly doesn't even cover the European Parliament at all. Mm. But on the, the rare occasions when he ends up here, when the work of the Parliament is household news, when Irish MEPs are the ones raising it on the floor and he doesn't uh, call them in, it's you've got to question that. And, uh, and it's not about, oh, boo-hoo, poor us or anything. What yeah. it is about is it's a graphic example of the lack of accurate coverage and that they don't want certain questions asked because they don't want to put our government under pressure. That's what lapdogs they are. We may not have the answers, but by God, we're asking the questions for sure. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, we've known for a while, uh, for a number of years now, that um, 
we, you know, we, we, we do have to use a different medium to get our message out because mm. uh, we're not going to get much coverage uh, from, you know, the big programmes in RT or the news. And it's interesting, we were talking just before we started the podcast a bit about um, how the Irish media is really obsessed with Navalny right now. And it's not the same everywhere. Like, I don't see the same fanaticism in, in Belgium, for instance. But it's interesting what media, what international stuff does get coverage um, in Ireland. Like, for instance, Claire, like in Bulgaria, we did so much mm. about Bulgaria. We've heard so much about that here. In Brussels, we're talking about it all the time. You did a load of work. You're like the most known person in mm. in the parliament on Bulgaria. You're basically, they're they're pop icon, I think, or something. Yeah, um, yeah. And nobody knows about anything about the protests. It's weird, in and actually, our diligent work, like on, on yeah. committees on issues like refugees and the the. the mistreatment of migrants on Europe's borders in Croatia and yeah. Bo- uh, with Bosnia-Herzegovina and that as well has been actually regularly featured in the Guardian uh, and yeah. they're not even even after they left the European Union we they, get, they cover that they've done stuff on, on data protection and that as well that uh, I've covered in committee but what but I notice about the two of you is that you get a load of international coverage mm. it's like you're systematically ignored by the Irish mm. media well, even the private media in Ireland and if you look at for example the the latest thing is Ethiopia. For instance, you're on the TV mm. in Ethiopia all the time now, <laughs> uh, Mick. And like, do you know, I don't think that's even mentioned on the six one at home. <laughs> yeah, um, nor the tragedy behind no, it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's what I'm, I mm, mean. Of no, course, I suppose yeah, the, yeah. the the narrative doesn't fit. Yeah, and you're speaking in committee um, uh, this week. I think you're speaking to someone from the government. Is that right? And yeah, I actually and we can have believe, a listen. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, I actually spoke on Ethiopia uh, on three different occasions to speak. I mean, this was an absolute. Yeah. Mad week. We had sixteen committees. We had <laughs> each, and uh, it was just nuts from start to finish. The Ethiopian ambassador uh, to whether it's to the EU or Belgium, I'm not sure, but I think it's to the EU. It's probably both. Yeah, yeah. But um, she came in and she brazenly lied for for uh, as long as she was speaking. Right? It was uh, it was like as if. God, go to Ethiopia in your holidays and go to Tigray in your holidays where there's four million people displaced. I mean, the, the UN conservatively, who, and they're not being let into the place to give humanitarian aid, the UN have said that there's a minimum of 2.3 million people displaced and in need of urgent help to keep them alive. They're literally starving some of the people, a, a huge millions of the people at this stage. It is unbelievable. And the UN are saying that and she comes in and she tells us that everything's grand. Hmm. Yeah. Unbelievable. So it's not even just the thing of of what of you uh, being individually covered in the Irish media. It's actually about these really important things you're you're speaking about and talking about and raising here because no one else would be doing it otherwise. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about that is on on Yemen, for instance. Like we've been talking about Yemen for ages, but now in the upcoming plenary in two weeks' time, it looks like we're set to have a debate on Yemen, and that's been a year and a half of pushing and convincing and trying to get people to support this. And mm-hmm. finally, there's going to be a debate. Now, it's not uh, certain yet, but there looks like there's enough support. But like, will that even be covered then in the Irish media? That's what, what's worrying at yeah, the end I, of the day. I mean, there was two discussions on Yemen this week and uh, the UN said that there was 13.6 million people starving in Yemen. 13.6 million. They have a population of about 30 million. Right, and they said that there's 20 million at risk of starvation, and this started hmm. with a bombing campaign in March 2015 when Obama, and sadly, with the compliance of the UN at the time, done a deal, 
And the UK and France were involved because they were selling arms to the Saudis in the UAE at the time. They were the two biggest sellers in Europe at the time. But I, I listed this week another uh, uh, seven European countries that have been selling arms to them. They'd done a deal in 2015 because the Saudis want the resources of Yemen. The Americans and the Europeans wanted neoliberal measures brought in. The Yemeni people... The people of Yemen didn't want neoliberal measures brought in and they had opposed anyone that had tried it. The EU and the US came along with the Saudis and the UAE and they put Hadi, who had been vice president, in place, not elected, only fell put forward and they said, oh, we'll have elections in 2014. So Hadi was a puppet of the West and he tried to impose the neoliberal policies and he was run out of the place and obviously ran to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia then were given the green light to start bombing Yemen into submission. Well, you know what? I've been reading a lot about Yemen in the last couple of years, right? Well, of all the countries in the world, they reckon that Yemen is probably the hardest to bomb into any submission or do anything else with them mm. into submission either. They're an amazing people. It's looking like it will you know, reap benefits and that we will get a discussion and it's 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 limited obviously but at least we're getting it and that in and of itself reflects how bad things have got there but look at it's just indicative as mixed up of the hypocrisy that goes on here I mean I was subjected during the week yet again to our special committee on foreign interference in the democratic processes of the EU ooh <laughs> scary right and it's just I mean for an absolute laugh these people are crazy like they just don't get it like so they have this thing so they have their, their topics on foreign interference and we were looking at Iran and we'd be looking at Russia and Turkey and now fair enough they had Saudi Arabia where actually there is evidence but they had to keep the Saudi Arabia fellow was in camera so a private meeting with him because probably if he gave his evidence in public he'd probably end up like Khashoggi or whatever in a in a, in, in a bag or something so uh, he had to be in camera but uh, the other ones were public but I mean it was pathetic pathetic like they have a hearing on Iran and basically the evidence was well there's no uh, interference from Iran at all uh, her thing was well you know the the Ayatollah has been given out misleading signals about uh, covid uh, so what? So was Donald Trump. So are loads of mad heads in Europe. That's not um, foreign interference, you know. Um, it's just mental stuff. It's no bearing on reality at all. Meanwhile, real foreign interference, like, you know, the, imposi- the uh, imposition of the Shah, the killing of General Soleimani mm. and all of that, which is actually foreign interference, doesn't get mentioned at all. And we hide it behind this fantasy. Uh, it's, a, it's an utter nonsense. But they, they lap it up. They love yeah. it. The MEPs across the board will say, oh yeah, but maybe Iran will get a capability. And I was kind of saying, well, in the Saudi situation where there is evidence, obviously, of not not only murder in terms of interference um, by the Saudis, but a real presence on social media. Um, They obviously were done for, you know, a lot of cyber security stuff on that as well. But look at, no one wants to talk about the fact that a lot of their technology was given to them or sold to them by European companies yeah. in the first place, you know. You raised the issue of Navalny earlier, right? Uh, I mean, that's actually... Well, well the reason is, all, and there was also a Russia meeting today. We don't have them that often because the Horrific, Russia delegation um, is actually frozen, basically, between... Usually, the European Parliament has uh, relations with each parliament around the world and they meet and have discussions. The Russian one is frozen since the annexation of Crimea but there's one every now and then so sometimes talk about the Russians behind their back and today we were talking precisely like what you're saying today about the disinformation from Russia about the vaccine and about interference in the elections and about justifying the sanctions and the 
uh, all the conditions that the EU wants um, to have against Russia before they um, get rid of the sanctions. But, so. but it's mad stuff, yeah. like because they're like their thing for Iran was, oh look, we think we'll see uh, an orientation on social media now from the Iranians, kind of more or less licking up at Biden, orienting uh, their propaganda to Biden. So I'm kind of going, what are you on about? Yeah. You know, they want the deal back on. They want friendly relations. Yes, they're putting their side. That's what countries yeah. do. It's not some foreign interference. They're promoting their own cause. They're trying but, to develop links internationally. Yeah. They're getting their message across. What do they think like that the EU and America is doing the exact same thing? Well, we, we had uh, a session at the Foreign Affairs Committee this week on uh, new EU-US relations. Mm. They had this American guy who works on the Biden team, right? And he came on. Carpenter's his name. Uh, Michael Carpenter, right? Oh, he's famous, right? Yeah. Infamous. Uh, yeah, some more like it, yeah. Carpenter says, now he says, what we're looking at here, he says, it's a straight battle, he says, with the EU and US, he says, against Russia and China. It's a battle, he says, of liberal democracy versus authoritarian oligarchy. And I said, liberal democracy versus authoritarian oligarchy. I said, do you know what I said? I actually think it is the EU and the US is actually more like China and Russia than you than you than you are admitting. What we have, I says, in the four in those four entities today, I said, is they're all run by big business, and I says all four entities are looking at rising inequality. I said, is it very alike? And I said the biggest difference at the moment between the four years is that China is managing its capitalism better. And I said, and I quote from, the, the, there's, a, there's a, a, a real famous American diplomat, right? He worked with, uh, with eight presidents, right? Seven presidents he worked with. He was a diplomat for 30-odd for years. Charles Freeman, right? A really interesting guy. You should listen to him. This guy, this, this guy's been there and done that, right? He's worked with seven different American presidents on foreign affairs, right? And I listened to him for an hour a couple of weeks ago and I took notes on, on, from the podcast I listened to. Right? He was amazing. And he said, when it was put to him about China and the fact that the Americans are, are, are increasing their build-up in the South China Sea and they're accusing the Chinese of agitating in the South China Sea. Now, you'd think the Chinese were in the Gulf of Mexico that they were agitating. It's the South fucking China Sea, right? And the Americans, it's where they have the most warships at the moment, right? And your man, uh, Charles Freeman, said, look what he said. China is not a security threat to America. He says, China hasn't bombed any country in the last 30 years. He says, America has bombed. We've lost count, he says. In 2020, Americans bombed 10 different countries alone in the last 12 months. But he said, China is not a threat to American security, but I'll tell you what it is, he said. It's a threat to its financial supremacy. And then he went into showing how the Chinese are actually going to be the biggest economy in the world, probably within 10 years. He he was showing that America at the moment uh, is in control of 16% of world manufacturing and the Chinese have over 30. They're nearly double them. Mm. The Chinese of, uh, there was a brilliant figure of that Freeman came up with as well. For scientists, uh, technologists, engineers and mathematicians, over 25% of them today are in China. Mm. He said, there is no contest, he says, 
Mm. Uh, he says, we are not going to beat the Chinese, he said. And he said, we bankrupted Russia, he says, with an arms race. He says, we won't do that yeah. to China. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, and they're completely caught. And I mean, the, the the double standards of them. I mean, you know, obviously we're facing this weekend. Ecuador has its election, but we see interference there as well, where the Ecuadorian government and even the the terrible one of of Moreno, who's there at the moment, had negotiated an okay loan deal with the Chinese. It was actually all right, and even with the <coughs> restrictions of COVID, they were managing it. The Americans basically behind the scenes went in um, to try and and bought a huge. Ch- chunk of the Ecuadorian Chinese debt in a big mad rush in advance of their election and before Biden took office to ensure that they, whoever gets elected in either America or in Ecuador, that that uh, debt will become the property of America and that its terms and conditions mm. fleecing the Ecuadorian people will tie the hands of the new Ecuadorian president coming in. That's mm. the deal that they did. So they say they support democracy. There's an election on, but behind the scenes they do a deal to buy the yeah. huge chunk of Ecuadorian debt and tie the hands of, of the and on yeah. terms not near as Jesus. good as they yeah. had with the Chinese yeah. Yeah. I mean uh, oh lord it wouldn't be well with them but on the Chinese thing I should make I made the point in my speech that uh, three weeks ago three four weeks ago there was a, a huge trade deal done between the EU and China and it was driven by mm. the Germans and the Biden administration yeah. appealed to the EU to stop, mm. let's wait w- till the new president's in place and let's talk about this. We need to talk about China. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what now. You will hear, close to, of, of, of the members of the European Parliament, close to 90% engage in mindless, stupid rhetoric, anti-Russian, anti-Chinese rhetoric. And belligerent. And, yeah. and oh, yeah. but I'll tell you what, the Germans, based, the Germans yeah. weren't interested. Mm. The Germans wanted business is business. Yeah. We want this deal. Mm. And... I think the point should be made. I mean, we, we've explained how over here we have a European Parliament, we have the Council, the European Council, which is made up of the member states, and we have the Commission. Well, I can tell you, you will not hear the same crazy rhetoric out of the Commission hmm. as you will out of the Parliament. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> not, you will not because they know where their bread is buttered. Hmm. And China is, Amer- is Germany's most important trading partner today. So that deal was going to be done. The Germans don't just run Europe for Germany's sake, right? <laughs> and related to production and consumption, I did want to talk a bit about uh, the Circular Economy Action Plan. So this is a new action plan uh, done by the Commission. Uh, We had one before in 2015, a load of actions to try and move towards a circular economy where there's no waste, all waste becomes resources, and that we treat materials differently uh, with more durability, repairability, and a whole new approach to products and waste. Um, So this is the new action plan. It came out last March, and Mick, you've been working on it since then as well, um, and I've been helping you as well on uh, the report, the Parliament's uh, report in response to this action plan. And it was just voted this week in, in Envy, the Environment Committee. And I have to say, I'm only it's only settling in now after a few days about how monumental uh, this call is within it, because usually a Parliament report is never anything that special. It's saying, oh, yeah, welcomes this. That's all right. OK, maybe do this, whatever. 
a bit of window dressing uh, or little <laughs> technical changes. But this is actually quite a substantial report because it's calling for new binding targets for 2030 and until 2050 um, for um, binding uh, targets on material footprint and consumption footprint. Um, so that's the total amount of raw material extracted for final demand and also about consumption. So two different things. Um, because currently uh, the action plan is only talking about monitoring these things. Of course, we need to actually reduce these things. And our consumption rate in the EU is actually criminal. We have, we're using uh, up resources at a rate of 2.8 planets which is absolutely mad. And in some countries, it's even four planets in Sweden. So we think Sweden is all sustainable and great, but they're actually in a huge amount of debt to the global Remember south. Remember that when you go to Ikea? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but it's used, like, when you think of, of uh, the, the amount of debt, environmental space that we're taking up, and we think we have a right to it, but actually we need to reduce. So it's kind of a degrowth thing. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit more, Mick, about what you think of this whole approach. It was interesting that Jason Hickel even retweeted it today, because Jason Hickel has been one of the, the leading uh, uh, proponents of degrowth, and uh, he wrote a book called Less Is More, which anyone that's remotely interested in our environment and, and the prospects for the survival of our planet should read the book because it's very, very good. Um, but he, what impressed Hickel was the fact that, uh, that there's actually binding targets, because that's what you need. You can, you can talk till the cows come home, about I uh, will have this and we'll have that and we'll have that. But unless they're binding, there's no weight in them. And uh, a year ago, we got the Green Deal, we got the biodiversity strategy and we got farm to fork and then we got a cap deal that was none of them were bound into it. You could, it, was, it was like as if they never happened. It was, the cap was like, and sadly it wasn't called out by our media at home but it was a terrible cap which uh, as I've said before looks after about 20% of the farmers and not the other 80% that need the help and but the fact environmental destruction yeah, <laughs> it's I mean, be a disaster and, and it's funny now yeah. but we're all very concerned about the pandemic now and rightly so but uh, the fact that one of the, uh, the largest contributors to the viruses is the loss of biodiversity is deforestation, and yet we, we, out the majority of Irish MEPs, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, voted for a terrible cap, refused to put ten percent. We were looking for ten percent uh, biodiversity protection on, on on farms across Europe. Right? They only voted for five. Right? They halved it. Right? We only got half what we wanted. We're all the scientists are saying now that biodiversity loss is leading to pandemics. Mm. And we vote the opposite way when we went and, and did the cap thing. And, oh yeah, but do Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael care about pandemics? Oh, we do, yeah. But yet to go along and they vote for a cap that continues to give 80% of the money to the top 20% richest farmers and uh, only 20% to the 80% that need it. And tell, tell us more though as well for our listeners about why degrowth is such a priority for you. And like when it comes to environmental stuff, people often don't think that's why degrowth is so important. But why was this a big focus from you in this report and in all the other environment work you do? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. um, when uh, when the, the, the Green Deal was uh, presented to uh, wonderful applause about a year ago, they said it was, they called it green growth. 
Well, I mean, the truth is that we can't just keep growing like we're growing. It's not, it's not sustainable. And if we do, even with all the good measures that we're bringing in, right, and, uh, you know, they are a help, no doubt about it. But if we continue growing like we're growing, or even, and even close to it, even if we reduce growth, we, we actually can't afford to grow anymore. We've got to do things different. We are going to have to facilitate an element of growth in the global south in order to keep people alive. But they're not the ones causing the damage. And the figures you gave at the start, Damien, of Europe consuming the equivalent of 2.8 planets, not to mention Sweden producing, uh, consuming the equivalent of four planets, but uh, we're only getting away with it because uh, we're robbing the global south blind. Mm. And it's not sustainable. And right now, and people don't like to hear it, but... There's 4.3 billion people living in poverty in the global south and the reason is because we have them there. We are enshrining poverty with our policies in the developed world and it's not sustainable anymore because it's coming home to bite us and we're not going to have a planet to live on if we don't change how we do things. Yeah, uh, that's it. Um, Shana Will, um, we did want to wrap up, but I think you ha- had uh, one last speech to finish on. And I think it was when you were talking to one of your best friends in the commission. Who's that? Mairead. Oh, the lovely Mairead. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we, we um, just very quickly, um, it was actually about, um, they're threatening to change the banking rules. And that, that's, that, that's Mairead's remit now. She's involved in the, in the financial end of it. But they're looking at changing uh, banking rules. And they're actually going to facilitate banks, making it easier for them to offload bundles of distressed mortgages to vulture funds. So I'll uh, tell you what now. That that would get me going. Right? Uh, <laughs> I, I have a fair bit of experience, personal and otherwise, with vulture funds in Ireland, right? And many, many people in Ireland do. In fact, I don't know of anyone in Ireland who doesn't know someone that uh, was treated badly by a vulture fund. And if you think that wasn't bad, if you think that wasn't bad enough, secondly, they're looking at creating a NAMA-style bad bank across Europe in the various member states to deal with distressed loans yeah. and I said to Mairead now Mairead you're from Ireland <laughs> we know that the Irish the, the way NAMA operated in Ireland did cost the Irish state a minimum a minimum of 20, 20 billion, billion. You heard uh, it from me. <laughs> in, in, with they were past assets that were had a bank value of 74 billion NAMA got them for 30 billion we had hoped to get 60 for them they're, they're selling them for about 34 after 10 years and they're claiming they made a profit of 4 when they should have got 60 come on Mairead anyway, be careful now with your name bank you'll surely be busy anyway Mick the next while in, in the uh, econ committee um, and it will go out on that so uh, thanks for listening if you agree with Mick that Mick um, speaks a lot less in this podcast and Claire is the one who speaks all the time do let us know because you're probably the only one and uh, have a lovely weekend get in touch with us and no, like share and and <laughs> I, I probably got my fair share this week for a change well, I think so it sounds a bit like that proportion do, of the do, cap do, do you know what, 80 or 20 do, do you know what someone said to me one day he says do you know who I think speaks most on that podcast Damien oh god no. I, I swear someone said, I'm only I'm telling you what they said to me here. I'm only telling you what they said to me right <laughs> well that's factually not true <laughs>
anyway, you did well to this week, make a big portion of that podcast going to you. So um, thanks everyone for listening and like and subscribe and tell your friends. Good luck. Bye bye.